goes through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's open. And I guess that's a nice sort of segue into things. So your, your book is all sort of modern thalamite practice, right? It's like, it's looking at modern thalamite philosophy and how we can do yeah. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Well, should we yeah. say, let's say, let's, let, let's start at the beginning. What was your sort of initial headway into Thelma? What is it that got you interested in Thelma as a, as a topic, you think? Cool. Yeah. So I guess we're starting now. Uh, yes, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, I'm Georgina. I've been to Thelma for, I think, I've been in occultist for like six-ish years or something. I'm not very good at keeping track of the dates. I have it written down somewhere, someplace, but. Something, it's yeah, something at some point, right? Something like that. Yeah. And so originally I got into the occult in kind of a weird way. I was actually looking at self-help books, funnily enough. Um, I was trying to like improve my life. I wasn't in like a horrible spot, but there were things I wanted to change, right? And so I looked into self-help and a lot of those like self-help books at the, you know, the local bookstores, they all, they, they eventually lead you towards like the kind of Cabalion type books. Like just, they, they inevitably kind of do if you read enough of them, right? There's kind of a core, a connection between those self-help books and like vaguely new agey, new spiritual, new thought stuff. Yeah. It's so my, my, I, mostly stuff that's coming from like mostly Egyptian stuff. Well, it's the new age conception of Egyptian sort of kineticism or kinetic paganism, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. So I kind of fell down that little, little pipeline and I got interested in the occult. And I remember I found in the bookstore, The Black Arts by Richard Cavendish, which is a very 1970s book. I, I just want to preface this very 70s. But it was the first time I had ever heard of ceremonial magic when I read this book. And I remember thinking it's super cool. I still have a soft spot for it. It's very sensational in a lot of ways, but I, I still think it's fun. Um, and it explained like Kabbalah and numerology or medicine. Like it had a lot in there. It was like a chapter for each topic. Um, it didn't really explain how to do things, but explained what things were. So I was like, this is intriguing. And so I kind of fell on the rabbit hole. And I remember I came across Crowley um, and I read the book of the law and I had absolutely no clue what was happening. And oh, so yeah. I put yeah. Crowley aside. I kind of wish I had read a different book besides the law first. But anyways, I did end up coming back to him and I started trying the Philemic rituals and I was like, oh, so it works. Um, and I like Philema specifically. The big reason is because it gives you a reason why you're doing things hmm. like with the idea of true will and the great work. Like it explains why you are doing what you're doing instead of just kind of randomly doing things, which I notice a lot of systems do. I want a bit of a philosophic backing to whatever I'm doing because that's kind of how I think about things. Um, and so Philema really appealed to me. And I've been a Thelemite since. I definitely, the longer I've been in Thelema, I would, this thing, I'm a Thelemite. I wouldn't say what I do is all strictly Thelemic though. Hmm. Like while I am, I'm fundamentally a felonite. That's what I am. Um, I do do some things that are outside of Thelema as well. So I'm kind of, I guess, a more eclectic, open-ended felonite yeah. of sorts. I'm, I'm borderline perennialistic at certain points. So it's, I'm, I'm definitely a felonite. Like that's what I would say I come back to. And I really like Thelema. I've had a really good experience with it. And so um, I've been talking about it on the interwebs. I did write a book that will eventually get published. So help me God. <laughs> It all goes through, yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, what am I saying? If when it all goes through, there you go. Yeah, I think I think one of the things, like I, yeah, believe it or not, I Crowley and Thelema are not my strong suit. Believe it or not. Um, so my original background, even before I went into magic, is in archaeology. That's what my degree is in. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I started off with a very sort of secular viewpoint. I mean, I was, I was always interested in ritual and spirituality, anything like that. Um, but I, when I originally started, I started studying 
religious practice or cultic practice in general in ancient cultures from a from an archaeological perspective and then as I was increasingly on excavation in all these places where I was going to these temples and all those kinds of places they were they always they have a a feel to them they have they carry that essence of divinity with them I think you know when you're going through that space you feel something it's the same thing you feel when you're doing a ceremonial ritual right it's like I think I remember you saying um I might have been in a post or something, but uh, one of the the best proofs or best pieces of evidence for the existence of divinity is practice, right? It's, oh, it's sort of, yeah. Because there's no reason, like, you, like it's the ultimate form of self-proof. Just do the rituals and see that they work, and then that's it. You have, you have, you have your personal experience, right? So that was sort of my furrow into it, but then I... When I, when I was looking at Thalema, I think the, the, one of the things that always attracts me to it, because I kind of, I'm similar to you, I think. I, I take an ecletic approach to most of it in that I quite frequently do Thalemic rituals or Thalemic ceremonial magic, but I wouldn't necessarily identify myself as a Thalemite. Because I don't really subscribe yeah. to the philosophy behind it, but I still practice the rituals, but mostly because they give you a lovely structure, I think. And that's a really nice way or far of, of going into things, especially if you're new to ceremonial magic. I think Crowley as a whole, that whole book system of Valimera as a whole provides a really beautiful framework for doing things, which you can bounce off of or get onto, you know? Yeah, well, Thelema is a very radically syncretic system. I mean, what Thelema essentially was a project to do, and honestly, on a larger sense, the entire Victorian English occult revival was a project to do, was to syncretize all religion together into yeah. like, the ultimate master religion to find truth, right? Um, Blavatsky said it pretty blunt, which is like the highest form of religion is truth, right? All these people at this time were trying to like smash everything together, right? Yeah. And so Thelema is a super composite system. Um, um, and I also, I would describe Philema as kind of three things in one. Um, I like to put it this way. It's like a threefold system. There's a philosophy, there's the religion, and then there's the practical side. And I think you don't necessarily need to adhere to all three to engage with Philema. To call yourself Thelemite, I mean, maybe you want to do all three, but I think that there's still value in engaging with Crowley and doing some of this stuff, even if you don't properly call yourself Thelemite, because the thing is, Thelema was always meant to be kind of a current. Um, it was meant to be a syncretism of what already existed. So I don't, I, I've never seen an issue with people doing that. I think it's completely makes sense hmm. with what the system is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what do you, what do you make of, uh, <laughs> what do you make of Crowley as a figure? I suppose this is a bit of a hot I talk, right? have but, a lot of complicated feelings about Crowley. And my, my think, views yeah, have changed over time. Hmm. Um, I have some major critiques of him, to be completely honest. Uh, mostly in that I think that his, and this is this is this is probably not everyone's critique of Crowley. People have there are quite a few major critiques people throw at him. My one that I do is that I think sometimes he was blocked from his own true will by his tendency towards hedonism. Hmm. I think sometimes it actually kind of kicked him them you know it kind of shot him in the leg or the foot whatever that expression is shot him in the foot i think that's what it is Close enough. yeah i will shoot my own leg now to, to test this theory but yeah i mean i i think that he was this the thing he was a provocateur and i think we need to understand him as that i think you could also even describe him as like a proto troll right he would go into these interviews with the british press and he would essentially be the media appointed villain that they wanted right he would say these extremely incendiary things right and they would always have a kernel of truth to them but he would say them in a way that you know it, it sparked attention and the funny thing about that is if crowley never did that Thelema probably wouldn't be as popular as it is now which 
while I think him doing that created a ton of misconceptions that I constantly have to talk about at the same time, I mean, it did promulgate his beliefs pretty effectively. So I have a complicated feeling about it. I think that he's a very nuanced figure. Um, I think that if you have a wholly positive or wholly negative opinion on everything he did, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's my general view on him. Like, he's way more complicated than wholly bad, wholly good. And I generally, though, am a fan of Crowley. I have my critique of him. But I think overall, I mean, I don't know what modern occultism would look like without him, right? Like, I don't know what it would look like to be pulling out of that picture. You know, he was he was revolutionary in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think he, you know, regardless of, I, I think, I think there's, there's almost two archetypes really at play here. There's Crowley the man and Crowley the magician. Where yeah. if you kind of separate the two, like don't get me wrong, even if you, you know, you read any of the biographies or anything like that, you can see, you know, Crowley in his behaviour as a person. You know, certainly there are questionable things, but I think his in his, you know, as a as a magician, his practice, his contribution to. Well, ceremonial magic as a whole, but also just magic, high magic as a whole. It's really like even if you even if you take something like the Alice Goetia, right? You take you take something like the uh, the, the Key of Solomon, anything like that. He he really galvanized a lot of it. I think he really oh, put it into yeah. the mainstream, right? Or he he really structured it in such a way that it's actually accessible for people. And then oh, okay. um, you know you build off of all of that, and then it's it's largely those systems that he kind of designed and helped create via Thelma, I guess, that really laid the groundwork for modern ceremonial magic. Yeah, I think there's there's no way to pull him out. And it's funny, his reason yeah. beyond modern ceremonial magic, like like Wicca, I don't know how that would look without Crowley's influence. Yeah. Um, modern left-hand bath stuff, I don't know how that would look without Crowley. Like, I think there's a lot that would have to be changed to pull Crowley out. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's you're right about it. There are certain things. And I, I also think the Golden Dawn plays into this too. What the Golden Dawn yeah. and what Crowley were talking about popularized what modern occultism is. Like, let's take the Ibermelon, which is talked yeah. about a ton now. Everyone talks to the Ibermelon. People, it's like the golden standard of HGA work rituals at this point like everyone is like that's the ultimate goal or whatever that's like the 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 ultimate impressive ritual that was not popular until the golden dawn until like mathers and crowley like dug that up and popularized it like no one was talking about that no no one was and i think the fact they did the illustrated goetia that crowley did is part of why if you talk about the keys of solomon i mean the one that everyone talks about is the goetia i don't hear anyone talking about the ars pauline no, or, or any of the other ones. Like, even it's like, I um, mean, again, I bring up Stephen Siena again, right? But even Stephen Skinner's looked at this. You go through all the different ones, but even you look at something like the Ars Notoria, right? The Ars Notoria f- far, far predates the Goetia. The, the Notoria is like medieval angel magic. It goes back to at least the 12th, 13th century, right? And it's always included as a part of it. But I, don't, I can't actually remember if, if the Notoria is included in, in the, the Mathers or the Crowley translations of the, the Lesser Key. Sometimes it is. I don't know if it is. And the thing um, that's tricky is they're all printed with different things in them that it's kind of hard to tell. I don't have the different versions memorized. Yeah, I don't. It's yeah, I I, I have different versions on my bookshelf. I don't have them memorized. I guess look at all the different. I look at where they are, but that's about it. That's as far as I can go with it. But um, yeah, it's 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 oh, it's an interesting thing. I think how well I think even yeah, even the Golden Dawn as a whole, right? You can't. I mean, there was always a bit of, especially towards the end. I suppose there's a bit of an um. And one in the like all adversity between everyone with the Golden Dawn because they kind of I, I from what I remember when you when you read uh, about how the Golden Dawn broke down it kind of it, it ended up just being a lot of the founders just sending very passive aggressive mail to each other accusing each other of kind of stealing each other's okay. ideas or how one of them was in, in touch with the secret chiefs or anything like that and the other one wasn't and they were all 
fake and it's kind of interesting how the entire system of the golden dawn was kind of predicated on that whole pathway between neophyte to epismus it's predicated on suppressing the ego and yet a lot of the golden dawn fractured because of various egos involved but yeah, which, I mean, you see that in the modern community now. I, I mean, yeah. we still infight constantly. Oh. Um, and so the Golden Dawn story, I remember when I first read it before, um, you know, when I was just kind of doing this stuff in my bedroom and wasn't talking to anyone about it. Because the first bit of time when I was involved in the occult, I actually told, like, nobody, like, nobody knew. Yeah. Um, and I remember reading all this, and I was like, this is crazy. And now I'm incredibly open about being in the occult. I mean, I'm, my face is on the internet talking about it everywhere, right? Yeah. I have real-life friends who are occultists. You know, I've met a lot of occultists in the mm. real world now. And at this point, it's like, no, I see. I get it. Yeah. I get it now. But you're owning it. It's fine. You're in, you're in it. You're, you're following your true will. It's fine. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess on that note, then, what did... What is what is your what is your I guess this is a better question. What is your what did your practice used to look like versus what it looks like now? Um, it's definitely evolved. I feel like it's constantly evolving. I don't think there's mm. ever gonna be a point where my practice like stops changing. I think if it yeah. did, that'd probably actually be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, I think that constant change is good. Um, but yeah, it was really different. I mean, when I was new, I just it was very, you know, baby's first occultism, right? Like I made a lot of sigils. I was convinced that, you know, you need to do ritual bloodletting 24 seven for absolutely no reason. Um, I, I was like this weird combination of like kind of witchy new age and like just edgelord. It was very, <laughs> it was not great. I mean, I'll admit it, but I mean, there's nobody who had a great first few rituals. Like no, I, I don't think anyone's first sort of following the occult is a, a pleasant experience or it's not something they're inherently proud of. It's, it's, I think it's... I mean, it all worked. So it was, it was actually a very exciting period when I was super new. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you go through this like rush where you're like discovering all the stuff works, all this is real, religion is real. You get this like high from it. Yeah. And then you look back at it and you're like, girl, what are you doing? Um, but I, I think that's a good yeah. thing. I'm sure I'm going to cringe at the stuff I'm doing now in like 10 years. Or oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I do it now. It's... um. You know, I, I I'm mostly teaching a bunch of courses at my own through my own platform um, on occultism and ceremonial magic, or beginning to ceremonial magic sections. Um, and it's always it's always one of those things. I think we are our we are our own harshest critic a lot of the time. You know, because we look. I, I even I now look back. I mean, again, I've been doing this like ten years now, right? But I even I look back to how I've been doing it, um, and I just cringe. I, I I even even to this day, I still can't. I struggle to like put cameras around and like film ritual or anything like that like i period don't really film rituals very much it's kind of interesting because like there's a uh, there is an interesting amount of people especially in my community who are wanting me to film rituals and it's absolutely fine like i love it i, I love engaging that community i love engaging in discussion but part of it is like the rituals on the outside it looks super cringy <laughs> so it's so like, like a whole debate i've noticed people have really strong opinions about it like i know some people who are like you should never film rituals because when you have the camera on you're going to be distracted by it. but also yeah. people say it makes no difference and it's good to show people um i have done like zoom group rituals where i've been on camera like live doing it but i've never actually filmed and edited myself doing a ritual yeah um like with the can because i've done it with like a zoom camera like my laptop up in the background but i've never done a full filmed ritual i've always been a little nervous too i feel like when i watch it back i'm gonna be like I, I don't know i've just never done it i've seen some beautiful filmed rituals though i'm not opposed to people filming rituals by the way i just know it's always been a bit of a kind of thing people have strong feelings about yeah yeah it's, it's always it's it's i think it's one of those things as well 
so much of the ritual is also internal in general. So, yeah. you know, when I, I mean, if you're doing something like cerebral magic or any kind of phonemic, mm-hmm. phonemic working, right, it, it, you'll have some more stuff to look at, you know, quote unquote, where like you're doing stuff on like an active basis. But the vast majority of it, or, or a good majority of it, is largely internal, right? So it's like even yeah. if you're doing something like a candle magic ritual or something, right, or like a planetary ritual, where the vast majority of your working is going to be visualization focused. The video itself is just going to be you staring at a candle for like five minutes, right? Or what? Yeah, it's not super. It's oh no, it's it's just, it just it doesn't make what most people will consider good video content. I think Let's, unless you like edit it around and make images and stuff in, but. Yeah, I guess you could like voice over it or something. Cause I know there was this thing when they made a TV show about Thelema, Strange Angel, which um, I thought overall was a decent show. I did a review about it like two years ago. This came out years ago. And I remember they were talking about the Gnostic Mass because, you know, it's, it's a biography of Jack Parsons' life for those who haven't seen it. And so they wanted to show some Thelemic rituals. And the thing is, uh, and I found an interview talking about this too, a lot of the Thelemic rituals they thought were not cinematic enough or not shocking enough by modern standards. That was the other line. So what they did is whenever they would show these rituals, they would like basically like edge them up really hard and like make them much more extreme than they actually are. The funny thing is they made really cool video footage, right? Like it looked really great. Mm. Um, But I remember watching it in my head and I was like, that is not how this is done. Yeah, it's not what it looks like, yeah. Yeah, like even with Gnostic Mass, they decided to put the priestess in the center of the room mm. um, with all the people standing around in a circle, which actually looked really, really cool. But it's like the original ritual, it's on the east against the wall. And I'm guessing like that's more Then they made it way more, way mm. more. Over the top. So I don't know. I guess occult rituals are not as exciting as people think. Um, sadly, we are not doing the fireball throwing. Yeah, it's, just, it's, I mean, it's, it's a continual thing. You have to dispel when people sort of immediately, you know, when, when they think about magic. As a topic, I mean, again, it's, it's mostly just because our, our main, I don't know, what do you call it? Our main exposure to it is things like fantasy or Tolkien and stuff, right? So we, we automatically think magic looks like shooting fireballs or calling down lightning and stuff like that, right? And, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, there are definitely rituals, definitely experiences, even in, like, even if you go more into sort of traditional sabbatic witchcraft and that kind of thing, you, you have tons of stories of witches starting storms and things like that i think um oh what is it the the even the witches in in uh, macbeth right so the shakespeare's macbeth it's based i think it's based off of uh, a really popular story at the time that a group of witches were trying to curse king james uh and they were doing it because they tried to bring his ship down as he was sailing back to england mm-hmm. uh and they they're sort of on the edge of the Cornish moors and things like that. And they're causing storms and that kind of thing. So there is definitely that kind of precedent for it. But then when you come into, I guess, modern ritual, I guess, it's not anywhere near that kind of like fully thing because there's so much more, you know, like an internal portion to it. Yeah, for a long time, I described it as like slightly disappointing. But now that I think about it, it's almost, I don't know, I feel like it's almost more impactful that our rituals are allowing us to grow as people instead of just like, throw lightning at people like in a sense it's almost more valuable that we can you know do this stuff for internal self-development and for true will and for connecting with the divine and all that than just like smiting people with lightning but then again i do want to smite people with lightning so it's yeah you know like again i'm not an advocate i mean well yeah i'm not i'm not not an advocate for hex positivity i mean I, i i have complicated uh complicated feelings about that kind of witch talk movement i'll be honest oh don't get me started i will go off i have talked a lot about my problems with it because the thing is i have a lot of nuanced thoughts about it because 
I think the Wiccan raid, because really what this is, it's a reaction to the Wiccan raid, right? Which yeah. the Wiccan raid, yeah. the thing is the Wiccan raid is not even exactly what people have characterized the Wiccan raid to be. Because for those who don't know, the Wiccan raid is a poem uh, by Valiente. It's not like Gardner's doctrine. It's not like a holy text of Wicca. But anyways, basically the part that people pay attention to is the end where it says, what is done, you do, comes back on you times three or something like that. Yeah, um, and that's been... Yeah, and that's been taken as like this really extreme form of karma is basically how people have colloquially interpreted it. And so because of that, people were like, there's a problem with that because what if someone's like abusing me? Can I not stand up for myself? Like that's that's the real debate people made. They're like, yeah. oh, if I'm being like really painfully attacked by someone, can I not stand my ground? And so in response to that, people are like, okay, let's say fuck this and, you know, say people can stand their ground, which I would agree with. Mm -hmm. The problem is people took this and it became morality isn't real. Let's curse everyone who minorly disagrees with us and behave like children. And then it became a massive problem because now you've got these people who think they're like a badass for filming these. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. You're good. <laughs> yeah for like playing angsty music while saying they're cursing someone who was mean to them in a comment section. Right. And so it's like, I think the hex positivity stuff, it started in a somewhat logical manner, but it's just become straight up insane that honestly, I prefer the Wiccan raid to what's happening now, which yeah. I don't really even like the Wiccan. Raid to be yeah. It's, it's, I mean, again, it goes back to what we were saying about, uh, what we were saying earlier about, um, throwing as a structure. I think regardless of how you feel about the Wiccan raid, it, it offers a it offers something similar to karma in in a form of yeah. morality structuring, right? And when it comes to magic, because I mean, I even have mixed feelings about karma, honestly, but it's, it's, that's its own own discussion. But um, yeah, I, I definitely think it, it's it. I think as a whole, hectic beauty is a, is a re, is a reaction to it, but I think it's just a reaction that has just been taken way too far. It's like a complete oh, yeah. polar opposite reaction to what should be going on. Um, it's an overcorrection. It's like when you're driving in a yeah. car and you hit like ice and you spin and then you spin out. That's yeah. essentially what happened. Yeah. And it's just every, everyone's spinning out. <laughs> it's just on its own. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't know, even in general, like even, I mean, I may, I, I may sound slightly cynical with this, but I'm not super worried about like witch dog curses. You know, if, if I'm watching somebody doing a curse on, on TikTok against somebody, I, I don't attach a lot of power to it but that's just me um but even in general i think it, it's the amount of chaotic energy that creates in general even if it's just an internal energy for a person you know it, it, it isn't a long-term good and really it, it comes to i think i think people are probably more retiring themselves you know ha without having that sense of structure and i think it's also a really good it, it's i feel like it's a good excuse just to ignore your own sense of morality, right? Or just not question the things that you think are a bit uncomfortable for yourself in general. Oh, well, it's it's this weird take because what people will say is they're like, you're being a Christian if you're in sort of morals. And that's just ahistorical, right? Like the ancient pagans did have morals. And funnily enough, arguing the ancient pagans had no morals is like buying into the Christian telling of pagan history really hard, right? Yeah. It's just objectively wrong, right? The ancient pagans did have morals. You can read like Plato for 10 seconds and figure that out. Yeah. People before the conversion had ethics. People weren't just running around like it wasn't the purge. Um, and I think it's just kind of ridiculous. People act like morals don't exist like they objectively do. I yeah. think, sure, yeah, there's some that are a little subjective based on the nation you're from or whatever, but, like, 
morality is a good thing. We should try to be decent people, I think. Uh, I think that if your spirituality is not making you a better person, that's a little alarming, to be honest. Yeah, I think. Well, I, I think by I think it's by its nature, you know, because spirituality as a whole, I think, is quite subjective, where it's, it's a subjective experience. Or even even if you think of mysticism, mysticism itself is kind of a subjective experience, but you're applying, you know, outside or external experiences to yourself. But well, that's one way of putting it, or maybe they're self-generated. That's not sort of philosophical discussion. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting discussion, isn't it? Because I think. Yeah, like you said, Plato. Like Plato, like even even with Plato, right? Plato, like the, the vast majority of Western ethics and philosophy comes from Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all that kind of stuff. So a large portion of our morality comes from pagan cultures. Like yes, absolutely, there is an element of it that's very very Christianized, especially in sort of the you know the more sort of secular West. But a large portion of what we would consider ethics today comes from pagan sources, you know, or philosophical sources in the home. Um, and Maybe I mean, maybe you could even make an argument that it's, it's part of a whole perennial philosophy, almost. But oh yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I I get into the the perennial philosophy theory a little hard sometimes. So yeah, are you a are you a Platonic sort of Orientalist? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far. I agree with them on quite a few things. So maybe a little. I, I'm a sympathizer, I guess that would be the term. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, um, but it's. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think this is another thing in general, but I think the influence of Plato can't be understated either on, on Western esotericism. I think people don't, I, I feel like we don't talk enough about how impactful Plato was, especially because if you think Platonic, Orient, like Platonic Orientalism or just Platonic religion in general, especially Neoplatonism, had such a profound impact on probably Gnosticism and Hermeticism, especially. If you even go on like Wikipedia, of course, the best source, um, it mentions on the Western esotericism page, Neoplatonism. And I noticed like no one really talked about that. I've seen a resurgence recently in some of the like they're they're all like the devotional polytheist people, not like the occultist people, which is a little annoying. But a lot of the devotional polytheists have started talking about Platonism again. And I'm like, that's probably a good thing. Mm. Probably helpful. Um. But yeah, it's it's it is something that I think people forget as an influence, right? Because I find people they look into and they're like, okay, let's trace back the lineage of Western esotericism, right? Mm-hmm. You start with your modern whatever people are doing now, and then you get to Wicca, then you get to Thelema, then you get to um, Theosophy or Medicism, then you get to Rosicrucianism, then you get to Gnosticism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could you could reorder that in a few different ways, and it's still technically yeah. correct. But eventually, you do get to Platonism, and I feel like that's like the one that people tend to skip. They're yeah. like, eh, that's kind of boring. Yeah, I think it's, I think in general, because we have, when when most people think of Plato, right, I think most people, or at least in the, in the secularist view of the mass media sort of version or the mass, pop, or I guess, what do, you, what do you call it, popular consciousness, I guess, is they immediately default to sort of the rationalist Plato, like the, the, the Socratic dialogues kind of Plato, yeah. where, and they kind of just ignore a lot of the mysticism elements or the mystical elements in Plato's philosophy. Um, but even, even something like, like even the concept of gnosis, in general, yeah. really can be attributed back to Plato, right? And it's such an interesting, yeah, it, it's such an interesting thing for me that, that people don't talk about Plato as much. Like I, I've seen... It's so rare now. I've only seen yeah. those some polytheists doing it, and it's very odd. Yeah. Because when I sort of was, because I honestly personally kind of ignored it. I was like, eh, okay. And mm-hmm. then I started talking to some people who were really into it, and I was like, 
and they were explaining some stuff to me. And I was like, I actually agree with like everything you're saying. And I was like hearing about it. And I was like, I can trace this back to Crowley's writing. Like, I'm like, there's, this is that. And this is that. And I was like, Whoa, it was kind of like one of those, you know, galaxy brain, like yeah, like explosion moments. Yeah. 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 It's especially if you, again, even like, I don't know, what's the way of putting it? I feel like someone like Iamblichus, right? So like the Neo- or the Neoplatonists, I feel like they get more credit a lot of the time, mostly mostly because like the whole idea of theurgy in general really kind of lays the groundwork for ceremonial magic, I think, or yeah. high magic as a whole. It, it largely, it's largely a descendant of the theurgy traditions, right? Um, so I feel like a lot of people are, are starting to talk about, well, they have been talking about things like Iamblichus a lot of the time, but the fact that they're Neoplatonism, right, they're part of a Platonic movement, it just goes, it goes back to that original philosophy. I mean, even in, you know, even in things like the, uh, I don't know, what, what is it, like the, 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 the Timaeus and the Critias, right? So like two of Plato's like primary dialogues. The Timaeus especially is like so weirdly esoteric. Like people oh, don't. Yeah. The metaphysics are in there. It's definitely more subtle than, say, reading Agrippa or something. But there's a lot of metaphysical stuff in there. I've been reading back through some of it, and it's 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 crazy. It's just it's more subtle. And I feel like, you know, this is a wider conversation we've been having, yeah. and something I've been kind of ranting about a lot recently. And, and you know, I, I, I have this problem where I cannot hold my tongue. Anyways, there's been this, this recent discourse that Thelemic texts are not accessible. Right. right. And that we need to rewrite Crowley's rituals to make them more accessible. Um, I wrote and then deleted a very passive aggressive version of Live Arash, Um that I went a little far. Uh, what is up, raw, my man, was my opening line. Mm. Uh, <laughs> people were yeah. like, no, no, that'll do it. Yeah. It's up, raw. Yeah. Anyways, but this discussion has been Crowley is too hard to read. And so I was like, okay, sure. If you're talking about the book of the law, I will actually give you credit for that one. But they were like, no, Liberesh and confessions and all this is too hard. And I was like, have you read any of the older stuff though? Yeah. <laughs> it gets a lot harder. Crowley is not that hard compared to some of the older stuff. And I'm like, and you should be reading the older stuff too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like if you're only reading what people are writing right now, which I actually think it's really important to read what modern occultists are writing because that's how things are developing. Like, I think it's good to be paying attention to people on the ground who are making new stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to know where things came from, because I find that when you understand where things came from, the stuff that's happening now makes more sense. And, you know, the longer I look back at the older stuff, the more I can kind of laugh at what's happening now. And I'm like, we are doing what people in the past have done yeah. again, and again and again. And it's funny, these dialogues people are having forever ago, we're still having in just a different form, which yeah. is pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, even things like, well, if we, if we were to bring it back to ceremonial magic, you know, the amount of, well, yeah, especially ceremonial rituals, even thelemic uh, rituals, the amount of rituals that come from the Greek magical papyri in modern ceremonial magic are insane to me. And it's 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 so interesting going back and actually reading the, uh, actually reading the PGA. In general, because it puts so much things, or so many things, into a different kind of perspective when you see all the different gods or all the different things that are being called on in the PGM versus how they've evolved in modern ceremonial practice. But I always have, I mean, again, I, I suppose this is me being cynical as an archaeologist, right? Or, or recovering archaeologist, I should say. Um, it's, I have, I obviously have a thing for of the older sources. The majority of my practice is taken mostly from the older sources, mostly Greco-Egyptian and Coptic. Um, so for years, I had 
a bit of an aversion to reading more modern texts, right? Because I just I'm, I was just sort of sitting there thinking, well, everyone is just kind of it's basically just retranslating and redoing everything that older texts have done. So I, if I can read the older texts and that's fine, then I can just go back to the source of it, and that's absolutely fine. Um, and it's it's spurred on a lot of the time by I mean, you mentioned the Kabbalion things um, back at the start, there, didn't we? But the Kabbalion is a prime example of it, right? Because people, it, it's become very synonymous with Hermetic philosophy in Which, general. Kabbalion is not Hermetic philosophy. I think we should talk about oh. this for a second. I'll do my little my little Kabbalion. Yeah, go. Ahead. I think we're probably I think we're probably gonna say the same thing, but go for it. Yeah, yeah, I think we will. The thing is with the Kabbalion is the actual text itself. I really don't object to much in there. Like mm. most of the stuff within the pages, I'm like, okay, whatever, fine. Yeah. My yeah. issue with the Kabbalion is that people think it's something that it's not. Yes. Right. The Kabbalion gets passed off as like classical Hermeticism. People don't pass it off as Golden Dawn. They pass it off as like original Hermeticism, which I put Hermeticism in two categories, the Golden Dawn Neo Hermeticism. Yeah. And then like classical Hermeticism, I separate them. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, the Kabbalion is a new thought. It's it's yeah. from the new thought movement directly. Yeah. Um, the publisher behind the Kabbalion has very strong ties to Theosophical Society, which theosophy led to new thought, Kabbalion's new thought. You can look into the people who wrote it, the three initiates who they actually are and all that. Um, and my issue with the Kabbalion is not actually what's in there because what's in there is actually very standard theosophy, new yeah. thought stuff. Like there's there's nothing crazy in there. I actually see why people like it so much. I see why it's popular because it explains the stuff very clearly, right? I get it. I get why people like it. Um, it's a good sort of gateway drug to occultism, but people think it's something that's not. And I think that the Kabbalion has really leaned into that um and so that's my that's my little spiel about it yeah but it's it's uh, it's like the same thing um i well i i can go at it from a different perspective have you seen uh what is it oh is it by i actually have it up here um like the, the modern like little tiny version of the hermetica book is it by, yeah, I, I by is it freaking i think it's uh, timothy freaking dandy isn't it freaking peter Gandhi, something like that sure i've seen it in bookstores and stuff i remember the hermetica i read it on i think sacred text or something like i read it um, yeah. like I think it was, I think sacred text or maybe it was on Scribd, the reading processor yeah, website, yeah, yeah. one of the two of those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've seen it looks really small. Um, cause a bunch of the occult stores near me have it. And I was, I was like, that looks a little little. Yeah. So the problem, the problem I have with it, and again, this is sort of a, I guess this is part of like the wider philosophical question of to what extent do you just like allow people to gain spiritual nourishment from things and then also kind of introduce other newer or older concepts and things it's like the challenge i always have with it is i will never object to anyone finding spiritual nourishment or philosophy or gaining insight from any kind of spiritual text like i, I you know power to you if you if you go and read like the little hermetica the Kabbalion, whatever it is or a modern book and you get some great wisdom from it and it's great and it gives you some good life advice and you integrate it that's brilliant good for you but well, same as you, I have a problem a lot of the time when people start believing those texts are things they're not, or they start applying things right yeah. back to it. Because the Little Hermetica book, um, in fact, I can actually show you this. I don't know, we can, um, where is it? Hold on. If I bring my website up, I can show you a practical example of this. And then I can, then I can hope that everyone will hopefully uh, be able to see what I'm talking about and see that it is founded on some element of actual truth, uh, rather than me just kind of talking out of my ass for most of this. Um, but when you look at something like the Hermetica, okay, let's say like the modern like little tiny book, when we look at Hermeticism as a whole topic, 
it's really divided, at least in modern study of it, uh, into what we call the technical hermetica and the philosophical hermetica. They're sort of the two main huge branches of hermeticism. And the technical hermetica is, as it says, it's mostly technical, practical stuff. So it's magic, it's alchemy, it's, it's practical astrology, talismans, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the philosophical is like basic philosophy, right? It's about the nature of God, the divine mind, all that kind of stuff, very kind of platonic yeah. ideas. Um, a problem that I have is here. So if I share my screen, right? So currently, as it stands, this, this is basically every hermetic text that we know about or everything that we would classify as hermetic uh, yeah. in origin, right? So we have all the, all the technical hermetica, in there. Most of this stuff is in Arabic as well because it hasn't been translated, which is a bit unfortunate. Then we have the philosophical, right, which are all these bits. The, oh, yeah, the corpus is the one people talk about the most. Right, and this is the thing. So when you look at that little tiny Hermetica book that everyone sees in a cult book stores, or even stuff like the Kabbalion, because the Kabbalion is mostly derived from the corpus Hermetica, at least philosophy-wise, um, the entire book that they say is it will they mark it as the entirety of the Hermetica as a whole, because they sort of use the word Hermetica to mean a, a single book, right? Their entire translational summary is, is basically just this. That's it. That's, that's the only way. Yeah, it's only... the one that everyone reads. I mean, the Corpus Hermeticum is the one that people are most familiar with across the board. Yeah, right. But it's like my my challenge with all of this as as uh, as a content creator as an educator right it's like i, I want to try and expose people to be like hey guys like we have literally all of this as well that we can go through and find sources for um but nobody kind of thinks about it too much and it's a bit unfortunate um but it's, yeah it's it's a bit of a rap for me so i'm just like oh. And everyone kind of professes like the other, the other challenge you have with it is people will read like the Kabbalion or they'll read like little hermetica and they'll think that's it. They'll think that they they know all of hermetic philosophy and that suddenly everything's fine. It's like, okay, like hermetic philosophy evolved over like 300, 400 years, right? And it's like an enormous body of scrolls and papyri and texts. And it's so incredible. But the vast majority of them also aren't available in English, which is why I have to be a bit compassionate. But it's just, yeah, it's an it's, it's a unfortunate side effect of sort of the secularism of academia, I think, as well, because a lot of them just aren't available in translations outside of universities. Yeah, um, which is always a bit of a problem, right? Um, a yeah. lot of this stuff isn't translated. And there's always going to be a few people who are, like, willing to go the whole 10 yards and, you know, learn the other language. Mm -hmm. Most people won't. Yeah. Um, I remember I was really looking into the fraternity to saturnity stuff, which is mm -hmm. a very yeah. weird and wacky group in Germany. Um, and a lot of their stuff is not translated to English. Very little is. There's like two books on them. And I disagree with a lot of what they had to say, but they they basically essentially did a very wacky version of Philema, right? Very wacky antinomian Philema. Like if, if you think Philema is not edgy, they're like, we got to go harder. Anyways, I got to the point where I had read through all the English stuff. And the problem was there still wasn't much. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go on their modern website. I'm just going to plug everything into Google Translate this will work, then I can read it. I thought I was very smart there. Mm. It was not as comprehensible as I thought it would be. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think I get a little bit of this. And then I was like, I guess I could learn German. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's... Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, it, you run into this though with so many things, right? Like you hit walls. Um, and I've noticed in like modern ceremonial magic, you're using so many different languages and what you're doing, but it's like, it's hard to choose even which one to try to learn if you're going to learn one. Right. Yeah. Cause like you see that bit of Hebrew, um, like with the 
anything Kabbalistic. There's always that bit of Hebrew there. You see Greek, uh, Thelema uses a lot of Greek. And then like, if you go to anything like Christian, um, you see all the, the Slavonic church, Slavonic, and then Latin. And so it's like, what do I even learn? I feel like it becomes people's problems. And then if you look into like planetary stuff, you hit Arabic. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like, what do you even study? There's so much to look at. And if you're into like the Nordic stuff, if you look at the, what they call the Nordic grimoires and all that. Like you have to learn old, like, different types of old Nordic. Language. There's not even just one language. To yeah. Learn. It's like, well, it's, it's different dialect and stuff, isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. It becomes very overwhelming very quickly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I, I did try. I mean, well, I say I tried. I, I, I am very thankful for the fact that again, because of my degree, I, I studied Greek already, like Greek and Latin. I, I studied as a part of my, my studies anyway in college. So I, I have a basic sort of understanding of Greek, which is very useful when I'm reading the grimoires. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I don't know it, it's part of, I guess it's part of the whole wider current, like you said earlier, of almost like people trying to demystify Crowley or sort of rewrite Crowley. It's the same kind of idea where I think one of the big barriers that stopped people from getting into ceremonial magic is they look at it and they see all the all the different languages, or they see like all the really very fancy word rituals, and it just it, it like their eyes glaze over, right? Because you're looking at it and it just seems far too complicated. But the actual like principles and methods and stuff behind it are Fair, like they're not. I wouldn't say they're simple, but they're like with a bit of study, they're like easy enough to grasp as a whole. Like the framework. Interesting about it is, I've noticed when you read the older stuff, especially if you're looking at what people call the grimoire tradition popular proper, is that they look really overwhelming. But then you get to what the actual rituals are once you like decode everything, and it's really not that hard. Yeah. Like I think actually, honestly, this isn't grimoire, but Enochian I think is the most extreme example of this because. To do Enochian, you have to know a ton of stuff, right? You have to really study the stuff to make this up. But the actual rituals themselves are basically just talking. Yeah. Like the actual rituals themselves are not that complicated. But the thing is to get to the not complicated part, you have to like go through hell and back, right? Yeah. yeah. I suppose. Have you have you read um sort of John Dee's diaries? I've read some of them. I haven't read them all the way through them. Yeah. So it, it's it's always I remember I went to um, do you know Watkins books? Have you heard about it? Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, okay. So I, I, I live not too far from London, so I'm there most of the time. <laughs> um, but I went there, they had uh, like a sale of these things, and it's like a full like, translation of all the different volumes. Um, and I picked it up, and I was like, I was really excited to just, just start reading through it. And then I didn't know why, it just didn't cross my mind. The vast majority of them, because they're direct translations from the manuscripts, they're all in Latin. But I was saying, I was yeah. like, I really just want to read it. I just want to read it. In, I want to read it in English. Or like, I don't know enough Latin to be able to translate this. Because like, even because there's Latin, and then there's also like, it, it's this is the same problem that's plaguing the Hermetica. It's not so much that the stuff isn't available in English, or that it couldn't be available in English. It's that in order to make it available in English, you have to have somebody who has like a good enough grasp of the language to translate metaphysical concepts over like you can translate the words fine but unless you understand unless you have like practice and grounding in i don't know the actual philosophy and the metaphysics and the spirituality of what the words all mean and how they fit together it just doesn't work because the this is the spiritual meaning of word a regular meaning of word could be different perhaps maybe Mm. you should choose a different one instead of a direct translation communicate the ideas because I've, yeah. I've talked to people who translated books and it's it's i've really learned that translation is a lot more than like 
just writing the words. They have to know like what the words mean. And it, it seems like quite actually a bit of an art form, to be honest. And it's funny. I feel like a bad translator can really change the document for those reading it. Yeah, completely. Um, I mean, well, yeah, it's, it, I mean, uh, it was, again, Stephen Skinner talked about this a lot in, in his, his books and stuff like that, but the original translator of the PGM, right? So Hans Betts, because he's coming at it from a, like a secular point of view, he, he's like period magic doesn't exist. It's not real. It's just mad magicians are charlatans, whatever it is, right? That way it's all bullshit. Um, yeah. He, he kind of comes in and he translates some very weird words as as just completely random things and when you look at something like the pgm it's basically the working notes of a sorcerer from from late antiquity right from yeah. Egypt, Greece, whatever it is like the working journal basically that's all it is and because of that the like the vast majority of spells and stuff in the pgm or the rituals in the pgm have head words on them they say like the the, the magician actually writes it down he's like this is a this is a phylactery this is the talisman this is an amulet here's the differences but yeah. Beth translates almost everything as charm or spell, right? And he, like, even though there is a very clear head word there that says this is a phylactery, this is an amulet, here's distinctions between things, he translates them all, or, or maybe it's not fair to say best of it because there are multiple translators in the PGM, but he, all of them kind of just translate every, all the terms universally as charm or spell. Oh, that's annoying. And it's really annoying because you look at it, it's like, but they're like all of them, whether it's a phylactery, whether it's an amulet, whether it's a talisman, all of it, they are completely separate things. They, they serve oh, yeah. different there's, functions. There's a strong difference between those things. Yeah, right. They serve completely different functions. They're consecrated. They're created entirely differently. And then when people try and pick up the PGM as just like, as the book in general, when they flick through it, like it seems even more incomprehensible than it is. But when you actually break down all the chapter titles and all the headwords for the spells, it's like it actually becomes really clear. That actually, yeah. you know, like this fight actually begins with this spell or it belongs to this spell, everything's like this. But yeah, translations... Like I, I'm, I'm convinced botched translations are one of the major hurdles that we have to get over collectively as an occult community in general. But it's a hard, hard thing, I think, <laughs> as a whole. Definitely. Well, because we need people who are occultists and translators at the same time, which is hard to find often. Yeah, right. Especially right. when it comes to the more niche languages that some of these texts are in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird... Yeah, so it's a weird kind of sad experience, but I I, th I do think it's kind of getting better because I, in general, I think esotericism and magic has kind of gone through a bit of a change, even in academia, like in the past few years, right? Because it's kind of becoming more accepted. I don't know, this is kind of a trend. I think it's probably just, it could, it could even be because of all the magic communities and witch communities and stuff on TikTok and Instagram and all those kind of places where it's getting more accepted into the mainstream academia has kind of caught on a little bit because it's like studying magic or esotericism like western esotericism as an example you can get a degree in western esotericism now. like the university of amsterdam i think it's the university of amsterdam and i think it's rice university in texas have degrees or master's degrees in in western esotericism or magic that you can like actually focus on right but it's just, it's just seen as like a, a subset of like papyrology or linguistics or anything like that so you look at them from those perspectives but it's still a degree right in that oh yeah no it's i talked to an academic a while ago angela puka who studies this stuff and she's like yeah it's more acceptable to look into it more people are doing it they're having conferences um mm -hmm. they're you're more welcome to you know teach religion and stuff if you're 
um, focusing on esotericism. I did note from the conversation I had with her, and I've had another conversation with another academic, Matthews Norvig, um, who I talked to like last week on my podcast. Probably won't be last week by the time the show releases. But um, uh, yeah, it's more acceptable, but there's like this weird disconnect where you can be an academic, but if you are an actual occultist while openly being an academic occultist, it can be a little weird, but you can still get away with it. But it's definitely become more acceptable. I'm not an academic for reference. I just know a few. And so I think it's really cool that it's being taken more seriously because it is actually a very important part of human history and human development, right? Like, Hmm. I don't know how you can fully understand human development without knowing what like cultic behaviors people were engaging with. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it, it, it comes down, I think, to like phenomenology, right? To the study of subjective experience, like how people interact with whether it's their gods or sacred places as a whole or anything like that. That gives you an, uh, such an insight into how people conceptualize their time, how, where they oh, are. Absolutely. You know, it's such an important thing because we, again, we, we don't. I don't know it's it's an interesting thing because we don't really it's kind of a sad thing you know it, everyone sort of compressed f in chat for it but we don't have any of the like fancy beautiful greek temples lining the streets anymore oh right? it's so Which sad is really sad right i really wish we did um and it's it's kind of interesting to me because even when you look at things like churches right and don't get me wrong like church architecture is gorgeous like some churches and cathedrals and stuff is really really nice but Less and less people are going to church on Sundays. And I don't know if this is like a thing. And I, th- I assume it's probably saying a, th- a thing in the US as well, right? But I don't remember anyone in my family or that I know going to church in the past like 10 years, right? Like it just doesn't really happen that much anymore. Like going to church on Sundays or going to mass or anything like that is, is getting less and less common. So we have, as a species, I think we're moving, moving more towards sort of personal spirituality. I think we are. Yeah. There in the U S the statistics are basically Christianity seeing massive fall, except in the more really strict sects where they're seeing a rise. Basically people are either leaving Christianity or they're becoming like traditionalist and there's not much in the middle ground, but even then that traditionalist number is not in like replacement numbers, people leaving Christianity. Um, so it's definitely, I would say more people are religious here probably than in the UK. Um, cause America's still pretty Christian. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like the, the, I guess I would call the normies. I don't know how to describe them, um, are moving away from it. I know some people who still go to church, but, um, it's less than it was in the past. I would say the majority of people do not here. Um, even when I was living, I grew up in the South in the U S which is the more Christian part of the United States. Um, it's the much more Christian part. And even then, like I know the majority of people didn't go, there were definitely people who did, but it was still the minority who did. And I'm, I'm assuming that number is going to get more and more extreme with time. Mm. Yeah, it's I don't know, it, it, it's one of those part of me feels sad for it because people, you know, when you're going to church or that kind of thing and you, you have a dedicated, it's, it's like having a dedicated, like a, a mass dedicated ritual room, right? Or like a mass. It is, yeah. You go because you go in, you have that intention set, you know, you you go in and you have that, you have feel that communal sense of prayer, that communal sense of divinity, whatever it is. And it's it's again. It's one of the reasons I, I miss all the all the lovely Greek and Roman temples that no longer exist. Um, because if you ha- imagine if we had those in society I and those like you know, we could go to, and they were actually actual places that like people could go, like not even just for religious mass, but just like in general for stuff, and just feel that. I wish, yeah, it'd be such a nice experience. I imagine, but I don't know. One day, yeah. one day we'll rebuild them. Give yeah. it time. Trust the plan. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. 
Um, all right. So I think one of the one of the other things I wanted to talk about is sort of on, on the more practical end of things. Um, as 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 a whole, sort of, if, if we're looking at sort of your personal practice. Um, so I'm I'm assuming like we like we talked about, right? So the majority of your personal practice, even if it's a eclectic, I assume mostly it's in, in like a thalamic framework, right? Yeah, I like the thalema formats of things. I think thalema has a very nice, like, structured feel to it. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah. So, talk me through, do you have, like, a daily practice now? Or is it, are you... Are you yeah, yeah. I'm a big believer in daily practice. It changes. It's always hmm. changing over time. But I do. Um, I don't want to go through exactly everything I do. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. personal. But I, I do... Um, a variety of things. I do some prayers. I do liber resh, which is the thalamic sun thing you do a certain amount of times a day. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, I do banishing every night. Um, and there are like small little things that I'll do beyond that. Sometimes I'll go through periods where I'll add certain things or take certain things out, depending on what I'm working at the time. But I always have a daily ritual. Mm-hmm. I never skip that. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's important. I think because. Well, I, I I remember you mentioning this in in your because you did a video on daily rituals, didn't you? I think. Yes, I did a while ago. Yeah, I've yeah. done, I've talked about it quite a bit. Um, yeah. I, I think, feel strongly about it. Yeah, I think it, it, it's one of those things where if you're used to, even if you're into, you know, whether it's sabbatic witchcraft or traditional craft or anything like that, and you're used to doing things that like Sabbaths or anything like that, or even, even, in, even in modern paganism, right? You look at any, any, any of the new, uh, neo-pagan schools, uh, the vast majority of their sort of big fancy rituals are always done on Sabbaths, or they're done at done the the wheel of the year days or anything like that. Um, yeah, no, we're wrong. Like that's really it's 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 great because they can be you know you can have like a full on Sabbath or anything like that with multiple people, and you can get some really great fun experiences with that. But if you're kind of what's the opening up? If you're waiting, if you think. We, even with the Sabbaths, you're, you're looking at maybe like four huge rituals a year or maybe like maybe eight if you're factoring in the cross-quarter days and stuff as well, right? And it's like, imagine, I, I couldn't imagine my personal practice where I would only do eight rituals in an entire year, right? Even if they were I like, do a lot know. of rituals. I do, I, my bigger rituals are spaced out. I don't do yeah. huge rituals every day or anything because um, it depends on the amount of big rituals I do is kind of varied. Uh, I do them on the big days, right? I do them on the filmic holidays, do them on the wheel of the year days. I do the group stuff here and there. Um, but I do the big rituals, some of them just as needed, right? Or as they make sense. So sometimes I'm doing them more frequently and sometimes I'm doing less, but I definitely do more than four a year. Hmm. Yeah. I, would say I do so. far, far, far more than four a yeah, year. Yeah, far more than four. Yeah. Uh, I'm... I am more and more starting to integrate in, into well into daily practice because again my challenge with it is because because a lot of my practices arrive from PGM. When you look at things like the PGM, you have to take into account the like planetary hours, planetary days, all that kind of thing. And then there's so well, many- that inherently is going to space you out. And whenever you do rituals with your you're aligning with all the planetary stuff, it always automatically spaces your rituals out. Yeah, and it's and also you like you look at things like purity procedures where the the PGM always constantly has multiple rituals where it asks for being ritually pure for three, seven, five days, whatever it is, and that concept of ritual purification is its own uh, I don't know its own beast to deal with because it's not it's not just I, I think people have a have a in their minds when they think about ritual purification they just think abstinence or no sex. Uh, Wait, that doing. can be part of it, but there is more going on. There's far more going on. Yeah, it's, it's one of those weird things. Um, but factoring all of that in has always been a challenge for me because it's like I have to factor in all the pantry days, all the pantry hours, and then I have to establish all of the purity procedures that go on. It's like it, 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 
you know, I can go a couple of weeks, whatever, without doing rituals because I'm waiting for like different things. But I'm leaning. It's weird. I kind of been on a bit of sabbatic witchcraft binge recently. Honestly, it, yeah. it's it's kind of weird. It's it's like a weird reaction that my body and my mind is kind of having, where because I've been so caught up in ceremonial work for so long, I'm like finding a craving of like going back out into nature and going into sabbatic witchcraft more. Yeah, which is really interesting. Like just to, just to feel the shift because it's such a it's it's such a different system, but it's also similar. It's well, there's influence on the modern sabbatic stuff from ceremonial stuff. Like, yeah. um, if you're talking about like Chumbly sabbatics, I mean, Chumbly was very close with Spare and Grant, mm. and the two of them, well, well, Grant was under Crowley, and Spare was associated with Grant, and so there, there is still a ceremony influence. You're talking about the Chumbly sabbatic stuff, though. If you're not about Chumbly sabbatic, then it is pretty, pretty different. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I have made some headway into Chumbly, mainly, mainly the Azuasia, um, but it's. Oh, no, it, it, he, he has such an interesting writing style. It, it, it's very kind of, it's, 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 it's evocative. You know, it really makes, yeah. it, it creates, it's very good at creating imagery in your mind. And it, it, there's a weird, I oh, know, this is, oh, no, I know, I was actually talking about, uh, talking with someone um, about this the other day, where even if you think of uh, any, any kind of deity, right, try and, I, I've been experimenting with this idea of shifting your mindset away from the idea of gods of things to gods embodying currents or gods embodying concepts. Oh, I like that. Where rather than, yeah, so think uh, as an example, right? So if you're wanting to work with Aphrodite or work with Venus, any kind of Venusian entity, anything like that, rather than seeing Aphrodite as a god of love that you are having to evoke or having to sort of interact with or, or maybe do like one of the Orphic hymns or anything like that to try to get our attention, consider the concept of love or consider Aphrodite as an embodiment of the concept of love in general. So a mechanism, a way of connecting to her or connecting to Venus or anything like that is meditating and contemplating on the idea of love and feeling oh, like with it, but apply that to every single entity, right. Or any kind yeah. of deity that you work with, right. Cause Aphrodite is a love deity, but look at any kind of entity that you are dealing with, whether it's any, any, whether it's a god, whether it's a spirit, anything like that, and you could probably, I imagine, you could do the same thing with demons in the Asgardia. But whether you want to be invoking them or not is another question, right? Or That's a different you know, conversation for another day. It's a very different conversation. Um, but I suppose, so I guess it works better with deities, right, or, or gods in general. But that's find out what they are the god of, or what they are, or they are associated with, and then engage ritual that creates that sensation or feeling or idea in yourself and then that is a mechanism or means of connecting to their current and then because they embody their current it's a way of engaging with their awareness or their consciousness and that's sort of something i've been playing around with for a bit um, i like that i'll check that out I'll look yeah into it. it's an interesting idea um because i remember i i mean it's it, it's again it, it's mostly rooted in again back in the pgm but it's also kind of rooted in, in ideas that i i've come across in like the Kaolian oracles for the most part yeah. where the, I, I don't know I, I don't know if you've read the Kaolian oracles um but they have in in sort of the neoplatonic system you have a bunch of different kinds of entities that are like emanations of the primal godhead right or, or the primal mind similar sort of similar idea to hermeticism um and one of the first almost powerful emanations that you have are these entities called um inges or inges uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it in greek um and we don't really have a good English translation for them. So we just kind of use the Greek word for it. Um, 
But they are, it, it's really hard to define what they are because they're kind of the first emanations of the mind. So one way you could think about it is they are the thoughts of the mind that are like actually personified or they're, they're the living thoughts or ideas that are brought out of the divine mind. Um, and the whole idea of theurgy, when you're, especially if you're looking at like Neoplatonic theurgy, is you're working or calling these influences in to sort of work with your own consciousness, elevate your own consciousness, that kind of thing. And I, I think it the, the translator or the best academic translation is probably Ruth Majerik. Um, and she has a really good commentary on it because she talks about this idea that the Incas communicates uh, messages to the theurgists during oh. ritual, and that's kind of what happens. But the message that they communicate is their name. And it goes back to the Egyptian oh. idea of the secret name idea, right? Um, and what ends up happening is by communicating their name, if you know their name, because they are like embodiments of thoughts and embodiments of concepts, if you know the name, then you command them or you control them or that kind of idea. Yeah, um, that's a classic idea. You see that everywhere. Yeah. Well, it's, again, I think, it, I, think, I think it's an Egyptian idea. But even, even something like, um, like, even like sigils, right? So if, if uh, like, I guess we could say like classic sigils rather than like spares, chaos magic kind of sigils. So like something like, uh, see, I guess maybe sealed might be better, but like uh, the demonic sigils and things. Like I know too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those kind of things are, I, in a way, I guess like I can kind of see them as like the modern version of the whole secret name, sacred name idea. They're kind of like the pictorial representation of a secret name. So by having the sigil, you command the entity, I guess is a way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we have, but it's, it, it's again, yeah, it's the same idea. So by knowing sort of the name of these Ingers or the entities that exist, and then calling out the name, then you're connecting to their current, you're bringing them forth, and you're activating their energy and that kind of idea, right? Um, yeah. And that's kind of where the idea of it came from, I think, because rather like if you think of, I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. It's a very weird metaphysical discussion, um, but uh, thinking about the concept of a, of a deity or thinking about the concept of an entity in general is, in effect, by tapping into their current, you're interacting with their name in a manner of speaking, and then by knowing that and interacting with that, then that brings them into manifestation in your life, or, or it, it increases the you know the focus of it in your life. I think in general, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride. So far, I'm still sort of experimenting with it, but <laughs> it's been fun. Um, but yeah, um, I think. God, how long have we been going? It's been like it's been like an hour, isn't it? A little over yeah. an hour. Yeah. Yeah. What's your schedule looking like? Do you have to go soon? I've got to go relatively soon. Yeah. So yeah. sorry. All right, that's fine. We can start wrapping up then. Um, so. Is there, so I mean, what do you, I, 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 was, I guess we talked about your book, right? But uh, is there anything else you're currently working on that you want to share? Um, right now, I'm just working on my podcast, my videos. I'm kind of just doing the same old stuff. I'm talking about Palima, talking about metaphysics, um, as I kind of always do. Yeah, always laughing. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think we can, we can probably call it that. And if you want to head off, but uh, unless there's anything else you want to say. <laughs> Awesome. Uh, thank you for having me on. This was really lovely. Um...